0: For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices. 3,000 miles from home, an American army is fighting for you. To the end, that the high ideals for which America stands may endure upon the earth. I earnestly entreat my countrymen to pause before they rush Hitler into this revolutionary change, which may well be irretrievable. I know that it is hard for Americans to realize the magnitude of the war in which we are involved. Well, France and Italy between them made worse people to the of their fire. The whole field of international relationships is in perilous confusion. if affair to the world can be set straight only by the firmest and most determined exhibition of the will to lead and make the right prevail. We're here because we're here, because we're here, because we're, here, because we're here. You are listening to the Versailles Anniversary Project. Introduction, Part 2. Conducting a search of the Treaty of Versailles in Google throws up millions of results. Switch the search to Google Books and the results are even more impressive. Maybe you're feeling still more adventurous though, and you decide to search in JSTOR, that online depository of journals. Or maybe you're feeling insane and you search Questia, that online depository of books, journals, newspapers and everything else in between. Between that and that secret peek onto Amazon which we won't tell the wife about, it becomes clear within only a few minutes that the task ahead is immense, bordering on the overwhelming. Interestingly, this exact problem of too much information available to the researcher faced those delegations at Paris as they tried to familiarise themselves with all the relevant actors, issues, problems, nationalities, religions, rivalries, the list goes on and on. Mercifully for us, it's not up to us to make peace last in the world. We're only focused on one end, the Treaty of Versailles, rather than the Paris Peace Conference itself. It is not up to us to reshape the world, to find significance in the losses of the Great War, or to ensure that this never happens again. We are only here to examine the fortunes of those that We're given this Herculean task, yet even that, as I have come to discover, is more than enough work. One can easily become overwhelmed by the sheer weight of material out there. It's difficult to say when excitement over the availability of sources turns into fear and a sense of foreboding. But for those that want to know exactly how far across the board I've ventured, make sure to check out the bibliography once it's released. Yes, that's right, we're still adding to the bibliography, for the key reason that, at the time of recording this introduction episode, we are far from finished researching and writing this project yet. Restricting our scope for this project was a tough decision to make, but it was a necessary one. In her 2002 book, The Peacemakers, invariably known by other names such as Six Months to Change the World or simply Paris 1919, The historian Margaret Macmillan examines the creation of the Treaty of Versailles, and within her 503 pages, she delivers some stunning conclusions and revisionist perspectives, many of which have influenced my own perspective of the era in question. Macmillan kept her focus tight, her narrative concise, and yet still, yes, we come away with 503 pages. As ambitious as I am, I do not have 503 pages. Maybe I only have one episode, depending on how long you stick with me. It's hard enough to jump into something like the Treaty of Versailles when writing a book, but typing all those loose or interconnected threads together for a podcast project has probably been the toughest organisational challenge I have ever faced, and I release two episodes every day for five weeks for crying out loud. This project will be following the same hymn sheet as Margaret Macmillan in some respects, but rather than everything coming under our focus... Germany, and the allied treatment of her, will take up the majority of our energy and focus. We won't, therefore, be spending much time on the Greek dreams for a great empire in the Dardanelles. We won't be assessing the final terms of a peace treaty which so angered the Hungarians. We won't be talking all that much about the Middle East, or the legacy which the Paris Peace Conference created there. We won't even, sniff, sniff, be talking in much specifics about the Irish War of Independence. Unfortunately for this project to work, we will have to stick to our guns, and keep the Treaty of Versailles firmly in view. That said, if you will allow me not to investigate everything, we will have sufficient time to deal with all the relevant plot lines that are thrown up. The League of Nations, Mandates, German War Guilt, French Bitterness, Wilsonian Idealism, Lloyd George and Friends. These are all important points for us, and we will be examining them as we go along. Let's get something clarified straight away though. The Treaty of Versailles was not the unfair or unmitigated disaster it is often presented as. It was not perfect by any means, there was an awful lot of things that were wrong with it, but there were some things that were right with it as well, and it's far from the total calamity it's often presented as. We'll be trying to explain why the impression, the wholly negative impression of the Treaty of Versailles has stuck, In addition, of course, to what the Treaty of Versailles did well, and not so well. As was the case for our July Crisis Anniversary project, my agenda is one of revisionism. And by that, all I mean is that I want to take what you think you know about the Treaty and challenge you to think differently. I don't want you to pity the Germans. I want you to understand them and the threat they still pose to European stability in 1919. I want you to appreciate the Allied position ...and the impossible choices which were presented to the Big Four and then the Big Three. By the end of this project, you will still see the Treaty of Versailles as an imperfect treaty. Nobody would argue otherwise. But you will understand what made it imperfect and why. It was not the case that a vengeful France led the way in an unjust quest to dog-pile upon Germany. The Germans had made their bed in many respects by autumn 1918. And like any other power on the losing side of the war... They would have to pay. The fact that they refused to pay, refused to accept that they'd been defeated, and warped the truth about what had actually happened and what had been promised explains a great deal about why our own understanding of the treaty is in turn so flawed. The Kaiser abdicated, democracy took root, the German army laid down its arms, and for what? Serves them right, some would say. If the German war aims and the German treatment of Russia was anything to go by, then it was only fair that the Germans were treated in the way that they were. In fact, as it is often pointed out, the Germans were treated proportionally better than they had treated the Russians with the Treaty of brest in Spring 1918 or, for that matter, than they had wanted to treat the other Western Allies. We will be grappling with the question of what Germany deserved, as well as what Germany should have expected, but our focus isn't confined to the Germans alone. You see, to appreciate the German position, we have to also appreciate the position of the Allies. For the purpose of this project, we'll be providing several background episodes to place certain concepts and issues and people into context. We'll also be providing three profile-type pieces on each of the big three, Sorry Italy, but considering the minimal Italian impact on the Versailles Treaty and the clear disparity in military power, economic might and influence, not to mention war aims, the Italian element is one that we can skirt around without missing too much. That said, as with everything else with this project, we won't be ignoring the Italians altogether. Woodrow Wilson George Clemenceau and David Lloyd George will all have to be placed in the context of their respective regimes. What did each man want at Versailles? What could each man realistically hope to get? And how did his previous experiences in government affect his behaviour during the six months of negotiations? Each of the individuals wanted something, and each had their own story to tell. Almost by default, David Lloyd George will loom into view in this project as the least dynamic or unique of the three men. And considering Lloyd George's political record, that is saying something. Lloyd George was the straight-up statesman who managed early on to satisfy British desires. He spent much of the negotiations thereafter balancing Clemenceau against the US President with varying degrees of success. Sometimes the three men, joined by the Italian Premier until April, reached agreement on everything. Sometimes they could agree on nothing at all. Sometimes they started the day with an agenda. Sometimes they began the day split into two camps. Sometimes the Italian Premier wept with frustration. Sometimes Woodrow Wilson comforted him. Sometimes David Lloyd George distrusted Clemenceau. Sometimes Lloyd George attempted to balance the Americans through the Italians and French. And sometimes Wilson aligned himself with the French to pressure the Italians. The Treaty of Versailles, as we will discover, was not a treaty arrived at by a straightforward or well-thought-out process. The treaty, which would later become so infamous, was hammered out over the space of fewer than six months, involving several different figures at any one time possessing the influence or advantage over proceedings. By the end, the finished document, the finished Treaty of Versailles document that is, contained 440 articles and none of the big three had even read all the way through it all. Let's remind ourselves of the three aims of this project before we go any further, though. First, I want to provide the best narrative of the journey from Armistice to the Treaty of Versailles, available in audio form. Second, I want to examine whether the treaty has been wrongfully maligned by historians or laymen or others. Was it all bad? Were parts of it just? And to what extent did those that attended in Paris stand any chance of remaking the world, considering the profound challenges and varied vested interests which they faced. Third, and in line with this, I want to ascertain whether it is truly fair to blame Versailles for everything vile that the 20th century produced, particularly the Second World War. Of course, these three aims blend into one another, and we may well retrace our steps a few times in the quest to satisfactorily answer them. This retracing may well be necessary because the Treaty of Versailles was the end result of an immensely complex process containing several moving parts. My honorary aim, you could call it, is to traverse all of these complexities and create a narrative which isn't only useful but also accessible to all and fun for all to listen to. We have a lot of bloated egos to unravel, a lot of concepts which may be unfamiliar, and a lot of institutions which will require explanation, but as I said in the beginning of the July Crisis Anniversary project as well, I promise to do my best to reduce the clutter as we go. All of the scripts for this project will be footnoted and referenced as before, and available to patrons at the $2 level and above, and I'll be using this scholarly basis of my project to legitimise it and justify my findings. You won't find any whacked out theories here. Don't worry, those of you that were scared off by the Korean War, Zach Twomley goes back to normal now and he takes off his tinfoil hat. If I hold an opinion or I make a sweeping statement, it's because another historian older than me and with far more knowledge has been there and felt that way first. As before, you know me guys, I want this project to be academically watertight but not dry. Academically watertight and not dry... These two qualities, I've hopefully demonstrated by now in previous projects, do not have to follow one another. But how will we achieve such lofty aims? Well, it all comes down to not only the sources, but also the structure. For the next eight months, we won't just be tracing the development of the Treaty of Versailles, which was mostly hammered out in Paris during the Paris Peace Conference, before then being signed in Versailles. We'll also be simulating our July Crisis Anniversary Project formula and releasing several On This Day episodes to keep our focus grounded. You've already seen this with the first proper episode, released on the 11th of the 11th to mark the centenary of the signing of the Armistice. This is an anniversary project, guys, and since we will only have this opportunity once, I feel it makes sense to mark each of the important stop-offs to the signing of the treaty on the 28th of June 1919, or 2019 for us. However, we cannot completely replicate the July Crisis Project formula, because where that old project spanned six weeks, this one spans eight months, and it contains a great deal more content than before. Because of that, we have to return to the context on occasion, such as in our profile episodes of The Big Three, episodes Placing Germany in Context, episodes Explaining the 14 Points, League of Nations, Reparations... Mandates, Poland, and more. The last thing I want is for people to get left behind in this project, and the best way to avoid that, I believe, is to make sure I give enough background to the most pressing debates of the 1918-19 era. Another challenge, of course, that of not getting bogged down in the background detail while we trace the eight-month story. To prevent that from happening, I have divided this project's episodes into two major categories just to clear everything up. We have On This Day episodes, marked by OTD, and background episodes. For those that just want to get a feel for the special anniversary period, by all means, only tune in to the On This Day episodes. But for those that want more context and to have things fully explained, make sure you track down those background or profile episodes you'll be easily able to distinguish between the two types of episode in the feed. Basically, if On This Day or OTD is not in the episode name, it's a background episode, designed to give you context for the issues at stake. It should be said that within the On This Day episodes, I'll be talking about relevant concepts, as though the listener is familiar with them and has listened to those background episodes, so to avoid confusion and so that I can avoid emails asking me who Woodrow Wilson is, make sure you are fully informed. Presenting this go-your-own-way method of listening to this project is important, because something which will become apparent very quickly is that we have a lot of ground to cover, guys. Every week we'll be spitting out as many as three episodes, and when we get to more intense months like May and June, when everyone in Paris rushed to hurry matters along, the release schedule will become still more hectic. I realise that you guys have other podcasts to listen to, and that you cannot always follow along to the letter with what I'm doing here. For that reason, I want to give the option for listeners to tune in to just the main events of the project, so to speak, that being the On This Day episodes, if you want to revel in the Versailles festivities with the rest of us. I should also add that November is a somewhat quiet month for Versailles, since once the armistice is signed, the relevant peace parties spend the next little while gathering themselves up, preparing to move to Paris, And declaring their positions. November and December, in fact, can be seen as the prelude to the actual Paris Peace Conference, which opened on the 18th of January 1919. Thus, we will be using November in particular as the month to familiarise ourselves with the most important people and concepts, so that once the release schedule becomes more congested, we will already have a leg up and know what's going on. This means that plugging into the social media outlets, particularly Facebook, becomes very important, because I'll be filling Facebook and Twitter with updates and extra pieces on the era as we go along. If you cannot get enough of Zack in your life, make sure and check those mediums out, and of course you know very well that the links are in the description below, so go and find us. So we'll be having background episodes and on this day episodes, in a kind of hybrid of the July Crisis Anniversary project, and I promise to do my best not to go into too many tangents but as you have probably guessed, this is far from easy. We start the profile episodes with each of the men's careers, and from there it becomes all too easy to delve into the hidden nuances of French parliamentary politics, to investigate the relationship between Woodrow Wilson and the Democratic Party that he shot suddenly to the top of in 1912, or to examine the extent to which David Lloyd George's Welsh nationalism affected his political outlook, but we can't do that or we'll be here until summer 2029. The profile episodes will ground the character in his era and reveal what made him tick, what ticked him off, and what he hoped to gain from attending Versailles in person. As his career progresses, other issues will loom into focus. The Woodrow Wilson episodes, for instance, deal with the 14 points and the president's ideology in that regard. Georges Clemenceau's episodes remind us that the Franco-German rivalry was key to understanding European conflict in the era and why that conflict continued. Lloyd George's profile episodes, surprisingly enough, provide us with a window into the early development of the League of Nations idea, as powers other than the Americans weighed in on it. Other background episodes will serve similar tasks, and before we examine the point when, for example, on this day mandates were first revealed to the attendees of the Paris Peace Conference, we'll be placing mandates in context in an episode, explaining what they did or did not mean for the old colonies, and why the concept came into existence in the first place, that kind of thing. Any major concepts that come up and are revealed on a given day, on this day, you can expect an episode explaining more detail about them before it happens. Again, I have to emphasize that the scope of this thing is probably unparalleled in terms of other podcast projects, but I would add that this not only is necessary to get the whole story across, It's also worth it, guys. You will enjoy this content if you enjoy When Diplomacy Fells' style. You will enjoy this if you got a kick out of the different formula which the July Crisis Project used, as I know a great deal of you did. In fact, I would confidently state that the July Crisis Anniversary Project has been my most successful project to date. It was arguably the moment when I hit my stride, some would even say my peak in history podcasting. With everything that is happening or could be happening for me professionally in the next few years, I would love for this project to build upon that, and importantly, draw more history friends into our relentless orbit. Now that you know the structure and my hopes for this beast, what kind of sources will I be using, you might be wondering. Again, this is where we are different from the July Crisis Anniversary Project, where I used about ten books. Now, more than four years later, I'll be using three times that number of books. Don't worry, I didn't read them all the way through, I'm not a psychopath. And I've also tracked down too many journals and primary source depositories to count, and I even signed up for this great service called Questia, which I mentioned at the beginning. For $50 every four months, I get access to millions of ebooks, journals, articles, etc. This sounds like the part where I say, use this code and you can get it too, but Unfortunately, they don't sponsor us, at least not yet. I just have to give credit where credit is due, and those folks over at Questia have really helped take this project to the next level, with their abundance of sources and really good ease of access. They even have an app for your phone. If you're thinking about starting your own insane research project, make sure you check out Questia. You could do far worse. From time to time, I will be pulling in audio or period music to add to the mood, all of which is freely available online and either recorded off YouTube by yours truly or taken from any of those copyright-free depositories that anyone can access and download from. Again, the bibliography is the place to go if you're curious or just contact me directly if you have any specific question. Finally, if this wasn't obvious yet, this is an ongoing adventure for you and for me. Unlike the Korean War, for instance, I have not yet reached the end of writing and researching this great beast before actually releasing it to you guys. In fact, I'm a great deal more behind in the researching and writing regard than I otherwise would have liked to be. This is unfortunate and it gives me no end of worries that everything will get away from us and we'll run out of time. I'm reminded of how much of a close-run thing the July Crisis Project was and how I was literally doing the episodes day by day on some occasions. However, while there is a danger that my poor brain will be overwhelmed, I do have faith that I'll be able to manage. As I said at the beginning of the July Crisis Project, though, I would ask that if things do get ahead of me, if they do get ahead of us and our plans fail, that you'll be patient and you'll be supportive of me as we catch ourselves up. I should add that you have always been this patient and supportive. I just wanted to cover my ass now in case I look back on this episode in eight months' time and cringe at my own naivety. What amount I do know about this project, I am impressed and intimidated all at once, but I'm also excited, so I hope you'll join me for the ride. If you'd like a recap of sorts of what you've heard here, then make sure and check out the blog post announcing the release of this project and summarising what you can expect to come across. Remember to plug into the social media feeds on Twitter and Facebook. Visit the dedicated section of the website on wdfpodcast.com or click on the link in the description And of course, support the podcast and this project financially if you feel so inclined by going to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. Anything you can spare goes a really long way and your $2 support will provide you with ad-free episodes as well as access to the transcripts of these episodes fully kitted out with footnotes, etc. In addition to older content such as Louis XIV's Arms and Armies, a 10-part series, examining the late 1600s and Louis XIV's ways of fighting, his soldiers, and battles, etc. If you wanted something completely different to what we're looking at now, maybe that's your thing. This week continues to be very active, so make sure and check out the final introduction episode, introduction number 3, wherein I summarise my views on why the First World War broke out for some more background detail. Otherwise, I'll be seeing you all very soon for the first proper episode of this project. You met me on the battlefield, guys, so I hope you will come and join me at the peace table. I'll be waiting, but until then, my name is Zach, thanks for listening, and I'll be seeing you all soon.